Now, Pat, you had another story that you couldn't talk about on air. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, I can't tell this story because everybody's still alive. Well, now, we're, now, we're, now we're off the record. Now we're off the record. <laughs> you know, off the record. My last story, then I'll shut up because I got to suffer enough today with us. <laughs> I'm having a blast. Yeah, go oh, thank you. Thank you. We're very happy to have you. That you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great From the moment you're a small bambino You eat pizza, you drink vino Then they make you roly-poly you get stuffed with ravioli. If your mama's a paisano, you will have the world on a plate. So see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm your moderator, John Viola, and very happy to be joined today by two of my favorites, Rosella Rago and Pat O'Boyle, are on. And we've got a really great episode coming up because we have a really special guest today that I'm very, very excited to talk to. First of all, she's a filmmaker with a bunch of incredible projects under her belt, one in particular that we're here to talk about today. But in addition to that, she is now a first-time published author with the release of her new book called Malocchio, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About the Evil Eye. And so I want to welcome on behalf of the Italian American Podcast, Agatha DeSantis. Agatha, welcome to the Italian American Podcast. Thanks so much. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really excited for this conversation because we have seen your work and all the hard work and effort you've put into the history and understanding of the Malocchio. And I'm very excited because the book is coming out, or it is out now, yes. and I can't wait to get my hands on it because this is a topic that I think everybody here on the panel and our audience can really relate to. I feel like when you look for something iconic about the Italian diasporic experience, the Malocchio is is right there at the heart of it. It's like our best, our, no, it's like our worst kept secret. <laughs> That's true. Nobody talks about it, but everyone knows what it is. Yeah, it's something that, believe it or not, I think draws a lot of, I don't want to say controversy, but diverse reactions from our audience and we, you know, social media and things like that. Tell us how you came to make this film and uh, why it's turned into such a project with the book and everything like that. Yeah, so I have a, a, a documentary film, indie documentary film that came out 10 years ago called Malocchio. And I had started it. Uh, I had finished my university degree and I was just in the mood to keep researching stuff. And for some reason, I sort of said, you know, I need to learn more about this Malocchio that I keep hearing bits and pieces about. So I sort of got my hands on the very few books that exist. There have been books written on the evil eye. There are not many. They tend to be very sort of dry, academic, anthropological examinations of it. And I sort of started reading it. And then I I sort of forced my mom and my aunt to start talking about it more openly. And I realized right away, I'm like, this could be a film. Like this could be a really interesting film. And the premise of the film, it was sort of like my little journey to discover what exactly Malocchio was. Is it real? Is it just sort of this, you know, mass delusion? And the point of the film was at the end, do I actually believe in it being a child of Italian immigrants? And so I started in the kitchen with my mom and my aunt. And then from there, um, I actually made my way to different parts of Montreal. Um, I came to New York to interview um, the one and only Ernest Rossi, um, <laughs> as well as some academics. Um, I went to Italy uh, to sort of learn a bit about the origins. And that was it. And it turned into a fun little film. Uh, I mean, it took me a good seven years to make it because it was very indie. But then I ended up selling it to CBC Television in Montreal, which is like kind of like our PBS. It's our, it's our national broadcaster. And then I brought the film on tour. I sort of for a couple of years, uh, I screened at different parts in Canada. I came to New York a couple of times, parts of New Jersey, Boston. And it was so much fun. It was so much fun doing it. And then what happened was I was nearing the 10th anniversary of the film. And, I, and people kept asking me, are you going to make a sequel? And I was like, yeah, I'm not sure. I have a sequel in me in terms of a film, but then it hit me. I'm like, a book would work because, you know, you're st even though it's a documentary, you're still trying to create a storyline. Sure. And I was like, these are all kinds of bits of information that just didn't make it into the film. Now I have a place to put all these, 
all these little anecdotes and stuff. So I went back to my notebooks. I went back to the books I read in preparing for the film. Um, I worked on the book and the layout and we, uh, we published it the 1st of October. And how's the response been? I, I can imagine this is a topic that people are yeah, I mean, drawn to. You know, it's a weird launch because obviously I had all kinds of grand plans for like a big launch and tour. We obviously didn't do that because we're, we're still in lockdown and well, semi-lockdown in Canada. So I, I, it's kind of been a virtual launch, but I've been getting really fun reaction. Um, it's an illustrated coffee table book. So there are a lot of illustrations and people seem to really get a kick out of it. So I'm really, ha- I'm happy with the response so far. Yeah. It's really exciting for us because we talk about a lot of topics that in some way or another, many Italian Americans or even Italian Canadians listening to the show, you know, because there's so many diverse experiences, some people relate to certain topics more than others, obviously. Yeah. But this one, I feel like even for younger generations who maybe are not as familiar with the details of Malocchio or even maybe not even realizing what it is or what the history of it is, but know the horn or know the hand or know something that their nonna did. And it's always got at least some familiarity to people. And I think it's a great way for us to cover a topic that everybody can kind of a learn more or b explain some of the things that have happened to them because like you said everybody has their own story too before we really get into the science or the anthropology behind the Malocchio, what was your favorite story you encountered so first off john i'm very happy you called it a horn and not a pepper because that i have to correct a lot of people uh, i know <laughs> Do you really is it that big it's not a pepper john has actually designed a t-shirt that says not a pepper and it's the dr pepper logo yeah. Oh, that's oh my god! I want that T-shirt. It's not a pepper, people. That's always a correction I have to make for a lot of people. You know what got me? So I I conducted interviews in Canada, the U.S., and Italy, different generations, different academic backgrounds, and there was one line I heard constantly, and it was "Non è vero, ma ci credo." <laughs> it's not real, but I believe. So even like sort of these academics that wanted to sort of distance themselves from this, you know, quote unquote superstition. I think there's an internal part of them, like just in case it's real, (laughs) I don't want to dismiss it. So, I mean, the first time I heard this line, I got a chuckle. And then as I kept hearing it, even in Italy, I was like, this is really interesting. That's so true. I know so many like intellectuals that you would never think would believe in something like this. And then it, it's like, oh, but, you know, be careful. Wear your red underwear, you know. Don't, yes. don't tell anybody good things about you. Yeah, one of the first interviews I did for the film, and actually it didn't even make it into the film, but this woman, Maria, her mother had taught her how to cure the malocchio. She's, uh, she's a little older than me, so at the time she was probably in her, I would say, late 50s, early 60s. So... She knew how to cure it. And it was funny because she had this like recipe book and she would have like, you know, her mom's gnocchi and then the next cue card was malocchio. (laughs) But she never advertised that she knew how to cure it. So she said, you know, she would occasionally do the cure on her kids if she felt uh, it was necessary. But she was kind of a reluctant believer. So we had a really good sit down to learn about, you know, how she learned her thoughts on it. And then I had her at the kitchen counter she was going to explain the curing ritual, which in her case was the olive oil drops in the water. And she had incantations to say. So I sort of had her, you know, we set her up and she went through the process and would explain each step. And then it got to a point where she had to read the incantations. So she takes the card out and she kind of pauses and she says, oh, actually, I'm not supposed to say this out loud. And I'm like, but Mary, I thought you didn't believe. She's like... Just in case, I'm really sorry. I can't read the incantation. <laughs> and that's the tip. Like, it was hilarious because she had spent, like, the hour telling me how she wasn't really a believer. And it was out of respect to her mother that she had t- learned how to do it. And yet, when it came time to reveal this secret incantation, there was a part of her that was just like, I can't. I can't. Just in case it's real. And I might lose the power <laughs> if I recite it out loud. And is it true that you can only learn this incantation at midnight on Christmas Eve? Um, Not everybody believes that. A lot do. I mean, because it's an oral tradition that's been passed on for countless generations, there are so many variations on how to learn, what you're learning, when to learn. So some people believe the whole Christmas Eve thing, but not everyone. Got it. I think it's very Italian, the idea that uh, we're kind of hedging our bets in terms of what belief system and, you know, I mean, there's 
so much wrapped up together in our history from paganism through Christianity. And mm -hmm. in, in the elevator pitch for an audience that may not know, give us this sort of the Wikipedia simple version. What's the Malocchio? So I always tell people the Malocchio is a superstition, a belief that's based on envy or jealousy. So the idea is that someone is jealous or envious of something you have or you've accomplished. And deep down, they may compliment you, but deep down they're envious of what you have or, you know, some acclimate you got. And so what will happen is there's sort of this odd energy that's going to hit you from the person who's envious. And all of a sudden you're going to have maybe a stomach ache and a headache or this weird fatigue that sort of comes on suddenly. So what happens is the person was envious of something you did or you have, they unintentionally, which is very important, unintentionally, because of this envy, give you the evil eye. And within maybe 20, 30 minutes of bumping into this person, uh, all of a sudden you're feeling crappy. And what's important is it's unintentional, so it's not a curse. And you cannot, under any circumstance, go back to that person and accuse them of giving you malocchio. So then what happens is uh, you'll know someone who can cure it or someone knows somebody who knows somebody. And there'll be a little incantation that happens and you feel better. And of course, it's all about prevention. So we have, uh, Italians have three amulets because one wasn't enough. So we have... <laughs> We have the corno, the, the hand, the mano cornuto, or the uh, gobetto, which is a funny little... Um, hunchback. Little hunchback. There's two more. Did you ever see the scissors? So the scissors is always incorporated in certain people's beliefs. It's sometimes incorporated in the cure, uh, and it's sometimes incorporated in the protection, but it's not considered an amulet. My grandmother used to make us put in our, like our pan pocket yeah. Little pairs of scissors, the, probably the size of my fingernail. Wow. Wow. And it was, there was a safety pin. On. See, people from Campania, we're, 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 this is our thing, right? So I would keep in my pants, and my grandma with the red and black ribbon sometimes, the pair of scissors, and my brother had a pair of scissors. Now I'm 45. And I was in Naples, and I'm, I'm in a store, like a fruit and vegetable store. Yeah. And a lady has an open scissor nailed to the wall. So it's, there's a nail and the scissors is, is hanging open. And I said to Nabudan, I said, oh, is that to keep off the, like, the horns? And she goes, oh, you know. I said, yeah. I said, I understand. A lot of people in Naples today, it's kind of passe um, yeah. symbol. Like Agatha in the Cilento, they use a fist with a thumb sticking out. Yes. Yes, that's and also that yeah. anti-my. That's their like Italy. Everything is regional, even our anti-my loyalty. Oh my God, Reg forget regional. Different households have different. Uh... <laughs> Wait, so I have kind of a stupid question, maybe. No. It's so how does this all play into now in 2020, where we have social media? Like, you don't just have to bump into someone now; they can see your Instagram posts. And yeah, give them a lot. I believe in that. It could have look. To, it's about energy. So one of my dearest friends is of Greek origin, and you think Italians believe in the evil eye? We got it from them. The Greeks, 100%. I mean, because the biggest difference is the Catholic Church does not believe in the evil eye. They are against the whole belief. Whereas the Greek Orthodox Church considers the evil eye a part of evil. So they are much more open about it because the church, you can actually go see your Orthodox priest to get rid of Malok, uh, get rid of the evil eye. The I've actually, I've done that. I've, I've had it removed by a Greek priest. Yeah. So I was in Paris with this good friend of mine. We were there for about two weeks. And there was one day where she really felt awful. And she was convinced that someone in Montreal, so we're in Paris, someone in Montreal had given her the evil eye because she had talked to her sister earlier in the day. And I was like, you're nuts. But she ended up calling her aunt. And I'll never forget, we were, um, oh, I forget the name of the, there's that big um department store that sells like i don't know how many floors of shoes so we were there and she was really and she loved shopping and she was really like kind of feeling really ucky and then all of a sudden her her demeanor changes she's back to her like spirited shopping self and she starts yawning and she's like oh i think my aunt's doing the cure yeah yeah, yeah so yeah. not only did someone from overseas give her the evil eye she was convinced someone from overseas was then curing it Wow. And I witnessed it, and I was just like, this is just crazy. Yeah, but I, Agatha, 
as far as the church, I've done a lot of research in this. Yes. We were Eastern Rite Catholics. We were Eastern Rite Christians until the Normans came. We were kind of a hodgepodge. So even in the city of Naples, there was an Eastern Rite Cathedral and a Western Rite Cathedral. Eastern Rite Catholicism, which would be Greek Catholicism, like mm-hmm. in Canada, you have the Ukrainians, the Byzantines. Yeah. The Greeks have a book. In the Latin Rite, it would be Roman ritual. In their version of the ritual, I think it's called Vasgania, the prayer that they use to take off the evil eye. I think something like that, yeah. yeah. The Eastern Rite Catholics. Now, I spoke to a priest who was a Melkite. Now, Melkites are Eastern Rite Catholics who are in Syria. They use that prayer book. They use that prayer. So I feel the problem is that the Latin Rite does not realize that that is part of the Eastern Rite tradition. And my feeling, my historical feeling on is that because we were mixed, we were a Latin and Eastern mix in the south of Italy, when the Normans came and pushed out the Byzantines and pushed out the Byzantine Rite, and little by little, the Eastern Rite died in the south of Italy, we maintained that liturgical tradition that was part of our Eastern heritage. So it's really not anti-Catholic. I've had fights with priests over this. That now, no, I'm not putting a mitre on my head. I'm not a bishop. I'm not a pope. But I think it's very arguable that part of our Eastern Rite tradition as Southern Italian Catholics was part of that. And when we were Latinized, when the Normans made us Latinized, then we lost that. And that's how it became part of what people were doing. It kept that going. Yeah, because individuals have no problem mixing. I mean, you know, I think of my mom, my aunt, that generation who are devout Catholics to this day. They have no problem mixing um, their Catholic beliefs with their belief in the evil eye. Actually, the beautiful thing is a lot of these curing incantations include Catholic prayers. The problem is the church with a capital C. And I mean, I'll argue that it's, you know, it's about power. You know, if you can go to the old lady down the street to cure you of the evil eye, then you don't need the help of the church. That's a problem for them. But the thing is, I mean, my aunts, you know, my aunts have told me this uh, when I, you know, I was interviewing them that officially the priests have to tell you that the evil eye doesn't exist. But they themselves, I mean, they're individuals. They've seen all kinds of things. They just can't, on behalf of the church, acknowledge the evil eye. But a lot of them will privately accept the fact that something's going on. I, I got to jump in a minute to defend uh, Christ's spotless bride, the Holy Roman Catholic. And Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> but I think that every exorcist, I met an exorcist in Italy, a priest. Mm, wow. And he was assigned to a parish in Emilia Romagna where there was a relic of a saint that was used to cure people who was possessed. And he said to me, when I came here, I thought this was baloney. And I'm here 18 months and I'm convinced because people come to me, I take out, it's a whole thing. I don't want to go off to it here because he would take it out. He would pray over the people and then he would see all kinds of whacked out stuff happen. Because exorcist was, an, was a step to priesthood. It was an ordained, it was, a, it was what was called a minor order. The church always felt that the evil eye is really like the fumes of the devil, right? It's kind of like lower level evil. And they always kept the priest in charge of it because the idea with an exorcist is they didn't want lay people doing it because it was like, once you get entangled with evil, this is out of your pay grade. Like you don't, you yeah. don't know what you're getting involved in. Now I'm going to tell you another story that just backed it up, just give you a different perspective. We, ha- you know, how, but you understand exactly. You know how you had the neighborhood lady who took off the horns. Yeah, everybody had one. She still like exists. To, yeah, yeah, you know exactly. Right, Cunchetta, Marie, whoever. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. Every town, every town, right? yeah, absolutely. Around the corner from me, my friend's grandmother was the horn taker offer. Oh, I love the <laughs> wait. The horn taker offer. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. When you had the horn, she took them off. You went to the house. <laughs> Right. I love it. And she was the best. Like, you know, like you go to New York for the best surgeons taking off the Maloika. She could have been in the Columbia Presbyterian and Maloika taking off. She was on a different level because I've seen people. They put the oil in the water and they're kind of half into it. Yeah. She could have had an exorcist movie. She was just on that level. Now, you had to bring her a piece of clothing and you had to leave it at the house. And from the piece of clothing, she would do a analysis. Like She'd say, OK, you have it. You don't have it. Then you had to come on a Tuesday or a Friday because they were the right days to take it off. Then you had to go and you had to sit down in a chair and she would do the oil in the water. And then she, now this lady must've been four foot 11. That's like what heels on. I mean, she was a smoke olive braze lady. <laughs> she would do the prayers. Now these were all Italian Americans. Remember these were people born by 1913, 1914, who had never been to Italy. I'd learned it from their parents. Mm-hmm. She would pray over you. And then she would begin the yawning. Yes. 
she would walk around the table and she would fall back. Now, I saw this when I was 21 years old. This was not an act. There's no Hollywood producer. She would you want to go, and her mouth would open up. And her daughter was like the assistant. And as she went around you, the daughter would grab her. So she would fall back and start going like, just like a movie, like the puck. Yeah, yeah. And it would be coming. And she would say that it was coming out through her and she would do all these yawns. And then when she was done with you, you felt like fantastic. I was like going to the spa. I felt the fan- absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, what do you give a lady for taking a malocchio off for you? Like, how do you, how do you, you know? It's a gift. They're not supposed to ask for money. Um, the woman I met, I met a, an amazing woman in Eboli, Italy. We interviewed her for the film. And pretty much that's, this is what she did. She was retired and people just came knocking on her door to cure the malocchio. And she will never ask for money, but it was understood that you would bring her something. So it could be food, uh, a prepared meal. Maybe um, you have chicken, so you bring her two dozen eggs, that kind of thing. And then I had met an anthropologist who sort of, through him, I met her and he said, you know, the respect went as far as at Christmas, people would also bring her gifts and things like that. Uh, but they shouldn't ask for money. If they ask for money, we're talking about another level yeah, yeah. of black magic and all that. So it's gifts. And it's, you kind of judge, like, um, the way the, um, the, the expert had explained it to me in Eboli is she, she was technically uh, quite poor. She lived on a small pension with her partner. And this helped her financially, uh, food-wise. Well, like I said, never money. Just food products, meals, that kind of thing. We had to bring food. That's what I... Yeah, a gift. You would give her, yeah, to you, show respect. Couldn't be any monetary. It had to be like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no money. Very important. And she would tell you what she discerned from taking it off. Like she said to me, I think this one did to you, stuff like that. Now, she would give you a prescription. She would give you salt. You had to put the salt in the four corners of the house. And I, I know people listening to this thing, this is totally pagan. But in the old rite of baptism that existed until 1969 exercise salt was put on the tongue of a baby. Blessed salt is put in holy water. The Catholic Church used blessed exercise salt, salt that exorcisms were put over. So what I'm saying is that these women would say to you, okay, put the salt in your pocket. She told me, carry salt for protection. That's totally in line with what the ter- church teaches. Yeah. See, I feel that they, these people were low, they're low-level exorcists. They're like entry-level exorcists. Now, if you want to have an argument and say, okay, the realm of evil, if Father Malarkey comes over and says, listen, Mrs. Kabutza, you're dealing with the world of evil. This is out of your pay grade. I can handle it. I understand that. But these people were not pagans. These people were using Christian prayers, using Jesus, Mary, and repelling evil the same way that an exorcist does. Oh, if you, I mean, if you tell uh, uh, someone, uh, it's mostly women, if you tell someone who knows how to cure Malocchio that she's pagan, she will be extremely insulted. Wait, wait, can we go back to the characters you created, Father Malarkey and Mrs. <laughs> you mean he's not, he's not real? <laughs> yeah. We could do a whole new cartoon. <laughs> They'd be like the Ghostbusters together. No, I know, listen, you guys say something. I'm not only Irish. My father's Irish off the boat. And I understand all those Irish priests poo-pooing and laughing at the little old Italian lady's taking off the horn. Yeah. So in defense of them and all the abuse they got, I had to throw two Irish names out there. Does that make sense? <laughs> it's only fair. It is only fair. I I mean, forget the Irish naysayer. There's plenty of naysayers within the community, and there's plenty of Italian-Americans who don't know this stuff. So I want to just give them the overview now. You know, you're talking about form of energy based on jealousy. Mm -hmm. We've established that there are methods to diagnose this, and many people have talked about different ways that their family, their community did it. You know, the olive oil and water, or as Pat says, she diagnoses a piece of clothing for X amount of days. And so you go through diagnosis like you would at a, at a normal doctor. And we've established that there's protective measures that can be taken, be they amulets or certain behaviors and things like that. And then the cure is really kind of diverse, right? You could have somebody walking around you yawning and going through what, as Pat references, sort of a small exorcism, or like you point out, you can be shopping for shoes in France and remotely get cured through uh, the process. Yeah, by telephone, yeah. But uh, I have some family lore or learned traditions that I've talked about that would be great to clear up with you. Mm-hmm. Because you know, we talk about the idea that you can't pay this, uh, what would you call it, Pat, the Malokia taker offer? I'm just using a Jersey term. Yes. I'm not trying to be funny, but the no, Malokia yeah. No, it's off. beautiful. That's be- I mean, it. I actually start my book in my prelude to explain that there is no one definitive way to explain it. 
there is no one definite cure. Uh, terminology too is big. I discovered right away that people don't even use the word malocchio. Like in my family, in my paisan, they, if they think someone has it, they won't even say malocchio, they'll say fascinata. So they don't even use the word malocchio. It's incredible. That's what's amazing about, I mean, it's oral history, right? So it's, there's no um, definite terminology. Well, it's like the, you know, the, the idea of having the evil eye versus the horns or, you know, yeah. all these kind of things. I know, speaking of the, the horns, the cornicello, the corny, whatever yes. people used to, to speak about them, you know, the famous amulet that is oftentimes red and red color having its own value to this whole kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I grew up understanding is you cannot purchase one for yourself. You cannot yeah. buy that protection. The way we were told as kids was either someone has to gift it to you or you have to steal it. And Wait a the, second. You have to steal yeah. it. I, didn't, no. I never heard about the stealing. I never heard that. That's no, maybe that was maybe my brothers and I interpreted that <laughs> yeah, and just had fun. We were we were clipping the little ones wherever we could, so, could get it. So, so John, you guys heard you can't buy it, and you interpreted it as I have to steal it. No, we had somebody. <laughs> no, we, I, I would. I, I'm I'm proud to say we don't have that streak of natural criminalism. And, but no, somebody actually told us. I forget who it was when we were little kids. That like you know you you can't buy this for yourself for protection, but you can steal it, and that will give you the same added protection. So I've heard that you can buy it for yourself, but you can't pay for the whole thing, like with knives or pearls or something. So that's why- That's a popular belief that um, it is a, the amulet is more powerful if it's gifted to you. But the big thing was too, we all, like we would say, oh, Frankie, what a nice car. God bless you. And Nabilan would be Benadid yes, who had to say that's that. That's very important. And if they didn't say that, it was then they went on the suspects list of the person who gave you the horn. Yeah. So that is very important. The idea is that one of the ways you can counteract potentially giving someone malocchio is if you compliment someone, you need to attach a blessing uh, right after it. And it's kind of like, shoot, just in case I'm going to give like a baby malocchio by saying, God bless, uh, Dio di Benedica, you're stopping that energy. Um, another thing, one of my great aunts used to do this. And as a kid, I was traumatized, but she would see us and like, you know, uh, pinch our cheeks and call us ugly. Oh, come say bruta. Yes. Yes. And I'd be like, why is my aunt calling oh, me? Come si bruto. Oh, quando si bruto. Quando si why bruto. is my great yes. aunt yes. calling me that? It, yes. I mean, I had to be an adult researching Malocchio to learn that it was actually the most endearing thing she could do Yes, because it was her way of, there is no way I can give you Malocchio if I'm calling you ugly. Yes. I realized after, oh my God, she loved us. Yes. This is why she yes. was calling us ugly. I remember baby carriages in Jersey City and the Italians going, ooh, quando si brutto, ooh, quando si brutto for you. Yes. And I always thought that that, and I understood as a kid, oh, that's what you tell babies. You tell them they're ugly. And I remember being like, we moved to North Arlington saying something about, oh, how ugly the kid is. Because I knew if you said the kid was beautiful, you could put the horns on them. Yeah. And they're like, what kind of animal are you calling a baby ugly? And I had like a cultural, what do you want to call that? Like a cultural shock moment. Yeah. Because like I'm six, seven, I'm seven, eight years old. I've never heard, if you called a baby good looking, they went absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because number one, you had to have the crib metal in the carriage for protection. That was another thing hidden in the carriage at the crib metal, right? Then they had the medals with the, with the, on the safety pin pinned to the kid. Yeah, the usually it's a cardinal, a cross, a saint that's been blessed. Yeah, yeah. You, the, the Italian people knew, knew not to say the kid was beautiful. Yeah, yeah. But the American people or the, or the like, you know, the self-denying, the, the, the Italians would say beautiful. And my grandmother's generation went through the stratosphere with paranoia. Then my grandmother said to me, spoot, spoot, spoot. I had to spit. Yes, that's big. <laughs> they go, spoot. So someone said to me, oh, you look so good. Number one, if you called somebody healthy, that was like uh, wishing a heart attack on them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Mari, you're so healthy. You never go to a doctor. I'm always at the doctor. You never go to the doctor. You're so healthy. That was like hiring a hitman because they went home and thought they were going to have a heart attack that night. Oh, that I'm sure, I'm sure they were doing, I'm sure they were doing the, the mano cornuta and like yeah. their hand in their pocket or behind their back. Like how dare this person compliment me. Then my my grandmother taught me, I had to say it, I'm afraid to say it on air. It was, if they were putting it on me, I had to give an incantation back that um, basically what you send to me, let it go back to you. Yes, that's it, yeah. Do you know that, Agatha? It's like you have to deflect it. Yeah, it was a deflection. It's all about deflection. That brings up another question, because in my family, until encountering your work, 
I was under the impression that someone could intentionally send the evil eye out. And in my family, the old adage that everybody held to was if you want to deflect it or temper your own tendency towards jealousy, you have to be really cautious not to put out the evil eye because it will come back to you threefold. And that was always something that kind of stuck with us, this idea that if you did send the energy out, it was going to come back. Um, that I haven't heard, but if you, um, cause I correct people all the time when they say something like, oh, I'm going to give them the malak. And I'm like, that's not how it works. It's totally unintentional. If you want to curse somebody and I've heard, I mean, I've heard crazy stories on that front that is in the realm of black magic. That means you have to go to like, uh, in Italy, they call them magos, a witch doctor, and then you pay them to curse somebody. Hmm. Malocchio, evil eye, is not done out of spite. It's not done intentionally. That's the biggest difference. It's really based on envy. So there's no such thing as, oh, I'm gonna, I'm giving someone Malocchio. You can't. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. If you want to curse them, you go see the witch doctor. That's the biggest difference. I always have to correct people. I'm like, that is black magic. And it, it, I mean, it exists. People believe in it, uh, but it's not Malocchio. Malocchio is unintentional envy. Agatha, you're opening up a floodgate of memories for me. It's all <laughs> they would say to you, like, Kuma Dizian, how do you feel? You yeah. could never say good. Interesting. You had to say, ah, that's why it means it means. Ah, I guess what you have to say, how you feel? Ah, I got a pain here, a pain there. When I heard, I went to Italy, oh, Kuma Stai, Stobane, I would say, these people, they're suicidal. Why would you say that? <laughs> why would you say, I'm well? Am I grand? You had to always say, ah, it means it means, ah, I got a pain here, a pain there. Uh, who wants to complain? And if they kept asking you questions, like, oh, how come you never go to the doctor? They were trying to zap you. If they kept persistent questioning, oh, you got all that money. Oh, I heard your Uncle Frankie bought you a car for your 18th birthday. No, nah, that's not a new car. It's a jalopy. He paid $6,000. It's $8,000 worth of problems. If they ever said something yeah. like good happened to you, you had to talk down that it was bad. Yeah. You could not say, oh, I won the lottery. It's fantastic. And this is an attitude that is so imbued in Southern Italian culture. Yeah. Like, I always tease my mother. I could be with her. We're laughing. We're having a blast. Someone calls, let's say, I don't know, her sister-in-law calls. How are you? And she says, oh, and I'm like, what, what just happened here? Yeah, that's so <laughs> it's true. It's this attitude that I cannot show off. I cannot show off that I'm happy, that some accomplishment has happened. It's so imbued in the culture. And the, the, the more south you go in Italy, the, the worse it is. It really, it's this thing where, yes, yeah, so you get a new car, you have to complain that there's something wrong with it. You've got a, a huge promotion. You've got to focus on the negative aspect of it. It's really, I can't remember which book I had read, this fascinating anthropological study. And it's all based on, God forbid, someone is envious of something I've accomplished or have, and they're going to give me the evil eye. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline simplified that's what it is and it's become this whole culture of I mean I look at my grandparents generation it's like they never brag they never oh you couldn't you can't it's it's so like they don't even know how because they've been taught they've been conditioned to always look at the negative like my my job is to brag because like (laughs) you gotta promote yourself you know this age so it's really I I struggle with it a lot it's like oh yeah but you know it wasn't a good book that I wrote it was it wasn't good (laughs) yeah you know like and and sometimes people are like oh didn't you do this didn't you do this I'm like yeah but it really wasn't that great you know like (laughs) it's part of it is it's part of our culture to be fair, Facebook is probably one of the biggest conductors of Malokia. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That gave the Malokia industry, that put it in a whole new once, once they got to Instagram, where it was just photos yeah. of all the fun stuff you're, you're supposed to be doing, they could have just changed the name to Malokia Gram. Yeah. Because that's really what it's for. <laughs>
I'm going to tell you another story because I'm having a, a, what do you call that, consciousness? What do they call that, stream of consciousness? Go for it. I love hearing stories, yeah. My mother had this big, you know the French Provincial of the 60s? The Italian French Provincial that you covered in plastic? Oh, yes, yes. The French, my mother still has it. You walk into my mother's, I told my mother, when the time comes, I'm giving this entire living room to the Smithsonian. You know, they have like Martha, they have, what's her name? Kumas Gambade, the French cook, Julia Child's Kitchen. They can have my mother's parlor, right? It's exactly, you walk in and Johnson's president. Nothing has been, because no one's ever been there. We've only been in that I room. Ca- I call it, I'm lucky. My parents didn't do that. But I, when, I mean, I had relatives who did. I used to call it the museum living yeah, room. The museum. Yeah. yeah. It's like, cool. like the cord, you can't, you can't even on the sit on it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so my, my mother had this huge French provincial clock, gold, gold, huge wooden clock. The clock never worked. We Because it was a battery powered clock. And one time I take the clock down. I'm like in high school. I said, I'm going to actually make this clock work. And in the, the, where the movement of the clock is, there's a, a hand, the Maloika hand. Oh, wow. With the red and black ribbon. And I said to my grandmother, I said, but why do you have it back here? She goes, if they come in and they, and they try to zap us, they don't know we're protected. <laughs> and around the same well, time, it's not bad for somebody named O'Boyle, right? I got all these stories. <laughs> I had to go. My mother had the chandelier, you know, like the bronze-esque chandelier above the dining room table, the mm-hmm. dining room table you only use twice a year for Christmas and Easter, if you had company, above it. So I go to change a light bulb because the light bulbs were like those flame light bulbs, those fake candle flame light bulbs. I had to get on a chair to change the light bulb. And I see above the, the, the china closet is another red plastic hand in a plastic cup aimed at the door. Oh, nice. So I said to my grandmother, I said, but why do you have this hidden up here? She goes, if they come in and they try to zap us, we get them before they get us. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it is. You know, the Norwegian people, what do they do for fun? Dealing <laughs> with evil, we get a laugh. You know, Pat, you remind me of... Um, Scandinavians have the horns? What would you call the skin? We would, I, I'm not going to ask you in Malay, but what, how do you say Maloik in, in Swedish? <laughs> I don't think you can. Do you have a Swedish listener, somebody from Finland? We how did. do you say the Maloik in Finnish? We did have a Scandinavian listener, and they, they wrote us saying how much they – I think they were Norwegian. They said they I'm, loved I'm it. I don't mean to hurt your feelings. No, no, they didn't. They loved it. They, they, they said it was the they, – they're not Italian. They love Italy and Italian-American culture, and they thought it was uh, perfect uh, juxtaposition. So you got a compliment for your Norwegian questioning, but I don't think that there's a term for it in, uh, in any kind of ancient Norse. But you remind me, Pat, of – I remember um, you won an award in Jersey. I think the – the Italian Tribune Award, and I got to sit next to Pat on the dais, and I, I, I think you were on there for about 20 minutes uh, talking <laughs> talking about how with the last name O'Boyle, people don't think you're Italian, but here's how you show you're authentically Italian. You really did a lot of it on the evil eye and, and the protections against it, and first of all, 20 minutes felt like five because people were falling out of their chairs laughing, but you were telling stories about putting out the red underwear and you know, tying the red ribbons and stuff. And I, it stayed with me because like many things we share, I experience those things. And it reminds me a lot, like, you know, you think you talk about, it's not a pepper, you know, red is a big part of this too, right? You yeah. know, wear, wear red underwears or tie a red ribbon. Yeah, like it's an, I think in Italy still, New Year's Eve, you're supposed to wear red underwear to bring I didn't the know torch. That. Yeah, yeah that's, to bring been modern, that's been a modern, that. yeah, that's taken Yeah, off. so the idea is that New Year's Eve, you should wear red underwear and it's sort of, brings prosperity for the coming year. My grandmother's side, my grandmother's mother from County Sorrento, they used to take a, a medal of St. Michael the Archangel and tie a red and black ribbon on it to keep off the horns and you had to carry it on. Because one time my aunt thought we were all getting like sprayed with it. So this had to be the night, she died in 1989. So this had to be the late eighties. My job was to go to the religious article store and get a whole thing of St. Michael's medal to put the red and black ribbon on. We all had to put them in, the, in our wallets. One thing I always remember growing up is on the day of a child's baptism, and I talk about it in the book, the God, one of the godmother's important job when they're dressing the baby is to pin to the undergarment of the child being baptized. And there's three amulets. There's the corno, there's a uh, cross, and there's a, pic- a picture of a saint that's been like sewn into a piece of cloth. And you're supposed to pin it to the undergarment to protect them from the evil eye. And the reason you pin it on the undergarment is that when they're at church later in the day for the actual baptism, the priest will unwillingly bless the amulet. So it gives it even more power, but obviously you can't show it off. So they can't put it on top of the child's uh, outfit. And this, like my paisans, my family, everybody did this. And it's sort of, it was one of these things I remembered as a kid, like, you know, my little 
my little brother is, you know, the godmother's dressing him and they're, and it's a big deal. And it's, it's the godmother's job to get those amulets. Cause again, it has to be gifted. So it's actually one of the gifts she'll bring that morning. They pin it. It's very important. It has to be hidden from view. And then it's exciting for them because the priest will bless it. <laughs> therefore giving it more power but he has no clue he's doing it i'm sure he does but <laughs> i'm sure he's like oh these guys this there's probably amulets but so not only was there the cardinal the cross the saint the saints are so important for believers in malaki and it's pretty much it becomes their patron like whoever is their patron saint uh that icon also helps uh but see if i could jump life. in if, if you take gabriel amarth who was the vatican's exorcist the pope's exorcist that just mm -hmm. died a few years ago when they do exorcisms the demons don't want to leave sometimes they call down saints and these saints are very powerful in because there's certain saints in italy who are known as saints who are like you know you have saint anthony's is like finding you know lost items certain yeah they all saints, have their specialties yeah. right some saints are like heavyweights they're like very good at like demon busting so, so you know saint, uh, gabriel amrath would say like you know sometimes i have a demon i can't get rid of i call down he loved Gemma Galgani, who was from, a, um, she was from Tuscany on the Abruzzo border. And they would call down certain saints when they like, these guys don't want to leave. And then you'd have to call these saints to remove them. So what I'm saying is when you have Father Don, ha, 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 you know, Father Don, who, you know, with his, with his polyester chasuble at St. You know, uh, Suburbia's, who's poo-pooing the Italian grandmother, the real early history of Christianity is rooted in this stuff. Like for, it's not anti-Catholic per se. Now, some stuff could go off on that tangent, but it's the earliest roots of Christianity. Like, for instance, why is the godmother, and it's almost universal in, in Roman Catholicism, why does the godmother dress the child for the baptism? Because originally, the godmother dressed the child after the baby was full immersion baptism, which the Greeks still do. Yeah. Now, why don't we do full immersion baptism, which means dunking the kid up and down the water three times like they do in Greece? Because what happened is, if you're in a cathedral in northern Germany and you're baptizing a kid in January, you really don't want that kid covered in water. So we had the little bit of water on the forehead because the cold of Northern Europe prohibited us from doing full immersion baptism. But our roots, even in Naples, if you go to the cathedral in Naples, the, which is really called the Assumption, where the, the blood of San Gennaro is kept in the side chapel, the Santa Restituta, which was the Greek part of the, of the cathedral, there was a full immersion baptistry for the baptismal fund. So a lot of these things, we don't realize. Mm -hmm. The one thing the south of Italy was great at was preserving antiquity. Because one thing about the south of Italy was they were never conquered by a non-Catholic occupier, right? So like all these Irish priests, they dismissed. Now, Ireland has a lot, I could go off on, Ireland had a lot of fairies and, and, and curses and that stuff existed in Ireland. But what happened was Ireland was occupied for 500 years by an occupying colonial force of England, which had become Protestant. So Catholic tradition was stamped out with the Catholic church. So many parts of Europe either became Protestant or they had non-Catholic or non-Christian occupying forces that stamped out a lot of the folk religion for all those reasons. But in the South of Italy, they existed because there was never an impetus to remove it because you know Spain went, Spain went totally into the Inquisition. And a lot of the folk religion, when Spain was reconstituted as a Catholic country in 1492, Queen Isabella, with the urging of her Franciscan confessor, goes and institutes the Inquisition, which is like, we are going to totally purify the country of non-Catholic elements, and, and Catholic elements are not totally Catholic, and we're going to purify Catholicism. At that time, Naples, the, the kingdom of, would become the kingdom of two Sicilies, is a, is a Spanish viceroyal colony. And the, the Inquisition gets to Naples. They're like, ah, oh, what do you want us to do? <laughs> they completely dismissed it. They never burned. They, it never went anywhere in Naples. And maybe if the Inquisition had taken off in the south of Italy, um, you might have kind of had Jesuit shock troops on the ground who might have said, no, you cannot do this. You cannot take the horns off. This is not Papa. But we never had that. So this, this existed. But my argument is if the Greek church has within their ritual books and remember, the, the Greek church, that is not a part of the contention between the Latin church and the Greek church, meaning the Orthodox and the Catholic, because a branch of the Catholic church of Eastern Christianity, which you would call Orthodox, stood, stood loyal to Rome or became loyal to Rome in Ruthenia, the Ukraine, in, in parts of Romania, in parts of the East. And they still use the Greek books, which take off the, the Maloki, take off the evil eye. So, you know, I, and last thing I want to say is I, I, I met an, uh, a lay brother. He was a brother of the Sacred Heart. Um, in the 1980s, and he did exorcisms. 
they called the deliverance ministry at the time. And he's telling me about the yawning. He goes, I always know when someone's been possessed because the yawning, they, uh, they, there's all yawning. I was like, oh, and that's how my friend's grandmother took off the horns. The one I told you was the horn taker offer. Yeah. And when we, were, when we were in high school, she lived with my friend's family. This is grandmother. He would say, I know when grandma's taking off the horns because I can hear her moaning downstairs in the kitchen with my mother. He just acted, oh, grandma's moaning again. Someone's getting the horns taken off. When she was dying in 1998, her daughter refused to learn how to take off the horns because she felt that the demons that she had expelled were coming back to attack her mother right before she died. Oh, wow. And she said in her mother's last hours, she felt that these demons were angry, that they had been expelled, that they had been exercised, and they were coming back to torture her at the end to take out their vengeance on her. Now, I wasn't there. I'm just recounting a story. But I think this is so much a part because I find in Italy, if I say Benedict, they laugh at me. Like I'm an antique. Oh, I, my grandmother used to say that. So I find that, you know, part of like the post 1950s, you know, the Nutella Italy, the new Italy, that's kind of poo-pooed a lot of this stuff. Well, what's happened is because one of the things I, I was surprised to discover when I started doing research is I assumed that the belief in Malachia was an older generation thing, but the kids here a lot believe and so it's like that. I mean, it's always, you know, the, the wave of immigration from Italy, 50s, 60s, the dialects, all those different traditions that came to North America and other parts of the world, you know, Italy modernized and got rid of it. Whereas, you know, we're sort of like in a, in a time freeze. And I think it's the same thing with the evil eye. But you got to remember something in Canada, your immigration was the 50s and the 60s. That's our biggest wave. Jersey City had people from the Chilento and the Val di Diano in the 1870s. Mm. Part of the New Jersey Italian-American diaspora goes back to basically 140, 150 years ago. So there's things that I have often argued survived here that were gone in Italy by the time of Mussolini. Sure. Yeah, yeah. We always say it's like the, the mosquito in the amber here. You know, we have these... Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, like we talked to Mary Minetti from the Italian Garden Project about varietals of tomatoes and figs and things that have, have are no longer survive in Italy, but they, they find them in yards in New Jersey or Brooklyn or Cleveland. It's the same for our cultural traditions. Yeah. I mean, uh, for me, my mother's side, everybody immigrated to Canada, but on my father's side, he, he was the eldest of six and he was the only one to immigrate. So my uncles and my aunt and my grandparents remained in Italy. So I have like a whole set of first cousins there and they're all a little younger than me. And I speak dialect. They don't like, it's this insane, you know, Yeah, they're going to lose all their heritage. Yeah. So there's stuff we're, we're practicing in, in Montreal that my cousins in Italy are like, you guys are nuts. Like you're still doing, I'll, I'll never forget the first time I met them. They were young adults. Cause you know, the first time I met them, they were very young and it, they, that first night we were all together and we're at the dinner table and I turned to my grandparents and I'm talking to them in dialect and I turned to them and I'm talking the more standard Italian. They were flabbergasted. They're like, how do you know how to speak like nonna? Like it, to them, it was this crazy, <laughs> crazy thing. I was Agatha. If you ever want to see Looney Tune me go off the deep end, start this conversation. <laughs> yeah. Let me the... ask you a question. Agatha, I got to ask you a very direct New Jersey question. Go for it, Pat. I need a yes or no. Do you believe or don't you? I do now. Brav. I'm, I'm going to tell you something. I was not sure. When I started making the film, I was still on the fence. But then something happened. <laughs> oh, see? Yeah, yeah. I got, you want to hear my, I got multiple stories. Everyone wait, wait, wait. has a Malocchio story. <laughs> yes, That's exactly. What I love about it. It, it's, you know, it, Italians will never agree on, on many things ever. Uh, we're a very divided people in a lot of ways, but we, we all have a Malocchio story, yes. whether you believe it or not, because if you don't have one about yourself, you have one about somebody else that you think, well, maybe it's true for them. I want us to give all of our stories, but I yes, want to- I think we should. We need to share. What I want to do before we close is I would love it if all of us could at least share what it was that kind of made us believe. It was an experience that happened to us or a story that we heard from somebody that we trust. So- Agatha, for you, what's the sort of real belief story? So I was editing my film and I still didn't know what the conclusion of the film was because at the end, this journey I've created, this storyline, I have to decide if I'm a believer or not. And we're editing the film and I'm like, God, I don't know what the last five minutes of this film is going to be. I get home one day, my mom's home. Uh, she's having a coffee with my aunt 
and I get home and I'm exhausted. I just, and I'm sitting on the sofa and I feel like this weird exhaustion over me and I'm not hungry. And I'm just like, you know what? I don't know. Maybe I've just, I've been working long hours. We're trying to finish this film. So I kind of tell my mom and man, I said, I'm just, I'm, I'm going to bed. Like I'm exhausted. I'm not hungry. Duh, duh, duh. The next morning, my mom checks in on me. How are you feeling? I'm like, oh, you know, it was weird. I said, I tried to get to bed and like, I don't know. I couldn't fall asleep. Like I couldn't focus. I couldn't concentrate. And like 30 minutes later, I felt a million times better. I actually got up and I did some work on the computer and she's like, yeah, I know you had malocchio. And I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, well, after you left, my aunt looked at me and said, I think she's fascinat. (laughs) (laughs) You need to do the cure. And I I got mad at her. I'm like, why didn't you tell me? Like, I could have called my cameraman. We could have filmed it for the, (laughs) like, I'm thinking about the, we could have filmed it. You know, it would have been a great scene. And she's like, well, actually, she's like, I was curious to see if it was going to work, considering you had no idea what I was doing. And so wow. now you've, and so I said, but Ma, you believe in Malocchio. Like, why are you? And she looked at me and she said, well, now you believe too. And that was it. I called my editor and I said, I have a conclusion for the film. Wow. That is powerful. So it happened. And it's like, she's telling me, yeah, yeah, you had Malocchio last night. And I was like, holy crap. <laughs> like it's, yeah. So that's what happened to me. I literally, I experienced it. And Without my knowledge, my mother cured me to, as a, te- for her, it was a social experiment to see if I indeed had it and if she could, could cure me of it. So the fact that I told her 30 minutes later after I left them, I felt a hundred times better for her. It was like, well, I already knew, but this is like added proof that it's real. It's a great feeling to have that kind of confirmation, particularly for the, the older generations that yeah. really, you know, hold on to, I, I, I grew up in a family where you would never get the same answer twice as to whether people actually believed or didn't. My, my mm-hmm. parents changed constantly. If, it depended on what company they were in front of. I, I, I'm sure how they felt about this stuff. But I can remember for a while, I had an assistant when I was at NIAF who I hired from Naples. And Pat will remember her. She was really, really mean. She was a lawyer in Naples. She was an ardent communist. We disagreed on everything. But I needed somebody who spoke Italian, spoke Neapolitan, and uh, frankly didn't have that many candidates for the job. So she came in and, you know, she, she from day one didn't get along with me and didn't like the fact that here she was, this Neapolitan lawyer having to do secretarial work. And we'd have this love-hate relationship because we both love Naples so much. And so she went back to Naples one time and she brought me a corner and it was a, a baby blue one with the Neapolitan soccer team logo on top. And, you know, said, oh, I, I brought you this, blah, blah, blah. put it on my wall next to my desk. And, you know, I I always grew up with the idea that if you're horn or hand or anything you wore on you had a dent or a break or a you know tear or whatever it had worked in deflecting the eye it had a battle scar and so that stood with me even as an adult and so she gives me this thing I hang it up and one day right two three months later she didn't like something I said and she came in my office and really started laying into me and I and I'm a pretty passive guy and I sort of asked her out of the office and I said you know Maria this is inappropriate you can't yell at me like this and she slammed the door and Enough time expired between the door slamming and her going to her desk, and the the horn just fell off the wall and shattered into a million pieces. And I said, there's no way. It had nothing to do with the door slamming. This lady left all of that horrible energy behind, and this thing that she bought me just protected me. And I I swear, it was like that moment of, I will never not believe in this based on that experience. Completely sold me forever, if I had any doubt. So that's my how I know this is true. What about uh, you guys, Pat and Rosella? Well, I, I think it really became real for me when I was getting married and we celebrated my bridal shower. And I'm sorry, I know you think the Malocchio is not intentional, but I don't believe that. All right. <laughs> I think they know that they give it to you. I may be I with mean, you on that one, Ro. <laughs> I, I think pet. they know. I don't, I, you know, it's very nice. We, oh, they didn't mean it, whatever. I think this lady gave it to me at my bridal shower and I think she meant it. And I think she knew what she was doing because I had a very big bridal shower. It was very, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't my bridal, it was my mother's bridal shower. So it was, you know, it was her shower, it was her day. There were, the, my shower was a production. There was costume design, there was set design. <laughs> There was, there was catering, like there was a script supervisor, there was a script, 
there was a, like a big, uh, you know, you know, the luminaria that you make for, uh, for the saint feasts. Mm -hmm. There was a luminaria, like, you know, <laughs> it was a big thing. Wow. So we had this big, beautiful shower. I had these little, these little setups set up. So one of my little like vignettes that I set up was a cafe with like a backdrop and it said Rosella's Cafe and it had a little bistro table. It had a little cafetiera, a little bialetti there with two cups, the espresso cups. My mother invited this lady, I don't like her. I don't <laughs> like her, she doesn't like me. I don't know why she even wanted to be at my shower. But at the end of the party, the thing goes missing. The bialetti goes missing. Mm. So somebody told me it was her. I fought with my mother, it was definitely her. My mother's <laughs> yelling at me, how dare you? How dare you accuse my friend? All this nonsense. I thought I won this battle. I was like, your friend's a thief and she's not coming to my wedding. Okay, two days later, I break my toe. <laughs> I stubbed my toe. It was broken. 30 days before my wedding, wow. broken toe. She gave it to me. That's it. <laughs> Doesn't sound like he took much convincing, bro. Well, I, be I believe that that was, you know, it was like, oh my God, this is my wedding, my, my wedding month nothing bad should be happening to me. And it was like, and, and my, and my foot did not fit in my wedding shoe. I had to stretch one of them. Now I have one fat shoe. <laughs> What's more Malakio than that? That's true. Mission accomplished. If she was doing it. She did do it. What about you, Pat? I got two stories. Can you cut one from edit one out? <laughs> Why not? Yeah, Cause I don't want these people to get mad at me, but it's a true story. Wait, wait, then tell the real one first. I'll tell the real one first and I'll tell the other one. Then we'll be done. I'll let these people go in peace. Um, now this was, didn't happen to me. It happened to my mother, but my mother remembers this very clearly. My mother was at somebody's wedding as a little kid in Jersey city in the fifties. And she wore a beautiful dress with all Kremlin inside. Cause my mother was an only child and my grandmother was like kept like a princess and the God bless her. Right. So but she had this beautiful, beautiful dress and everyone was going off about how good and how beautiful she looked. And my mother began to violently vomit and get sick and get the headache and the whole nine yards when she came home it was horrible. And my aunt who lived downstairs came up and said to my grandmother, she has the horn. She had the horns and my aunt knew how to take it off. And my aunt took them off and my mother was immediately got fine. Miraculously it all stopped. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, my mother remembers that. Maybe she was like five years old. She remembers it to this day. My aunt did the prayers, yeah. and it was gone. Kids are the most susceptible, and especially they're always cute. My mother always said, I mean, we were four, and, you know, she's, she's a seamstress. So we were dressed really cute when we were young and go to, like, big family parties. She, she had told me years later when I started doing the research, like, when I, if we came from a big party and a lot of people had complimented you, she's like, when I put each of one of you to bed, I did a little preventative cure. Wow. He's like, because there have been way too many compliments today and I want to get a good night's sleep. <laughs> and chances are well, someone got it because it, way too many compliments. Yeah. I find it pretty amazing that everybody has some version of these and everybody has had some encounter with it. And I think for our audience, this is going to be a really instructive episode because we, we do get a lot of questions about these things and there's so many misconceptions and, and misunderstandings and it's, it's nice to sort of lay it out. And so I'm really thrilled that you've not only created this great film, but now a book that can accompany it and take it even further. So on behalf of the whole community, thank you for doing that because it's a, it's a great piece of our culture to pass along. And this is a wonderful accessible ways to do it. So thank you for doing this. Thank you. I had so much fun doing it and that's what I hope. I hope, as we did with the film, I love hearing people's stories after they read it and like, oh my God, I have a story to tell. We might have to do a part two, <laughs> We should do a call-in. We did a call-in last week. Maybe we'll do a Malachi oh, call-in. Oh my God, I would so be up for that. <laughs> It'd be like the Italian-American uh, or Italian-Canadian uh, Dr. Ruth. You could, you could, you know, could tell them what's going on, diagnose a little bit. Maybe we can get some of the... That would be amazing. I'm on. I'm, I'm all for it. And where can people find your book? So you can buy it directly from my website, redheadproductions.com, or you can buy it, and it is, it's just amazon.ca, but we ship within Canada and the U.S. You actually have to go, I double-checked uh, John before, it is just amazon.ca, but Americans can go on it and uh, have it shipped, but, or else redheadproductions.com is the easiest. It's direct. And where can they see the film? It is now, um, earlier this year, I 
finally put the full film on YouTube so people can actually watch it for free on YouTube. And again, if you go to redheadproductions.com and you click on Malocchio, there's a link to the, to the YouTube um, um, page. So yeah, now it's as of, I don't know, five, six months ago, you can actually watch the whole film on YouTube. I figured it's 10 years old. It's time to put it on YouTube. I, I love that you're making this stuff accessible for everybody. And it is yeah. a great, great film and one that I think everybody in our audience will really enjoy. So go out and watch it, get the book. And uh, yeah, Agatha, you can come back anytime. This is a conversation that can go in a million different directions. I think we can spend days and still, you know, barely touch. Uh... I think the diagnosis call-in show is, is a must. So yeah. if you're out there in the audience and you've got issues uh, that you might want some diagnosis, send us a note and maybe we'll get together again soon and, uh, and let you call in. So from all of us at the Italian American Podcast, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Then to bring out your amore, you get chicken cacciatore. When your mama's a paisano, you have got the world on a plate. So see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italian. If you want your life to be great, see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italiano and your life.